Hello, I'm Lord Cutler Beckett, and this is Kill My Darlings, an interactive fantasy writing podcast. Shall we make a deal? Hello, I'm Hayden Rogers, and in this episode, we're going to be looking at the construction of law enforcement in my novel. We're talking about the police, or whatever system that keeps order or maintains the status quo, specifically looking at the city that I described in episode 4, Kill My Setting. So this law enforcement isn't necessarily universal. And as always, my forever disclaimer, everything in this episode is subject to change, and really when you think about it, That's because that's the whole point of doing this podcast. Before we jump into it, let's take a look at community feedback since the last episode. It's been a while, um, in case you missed it. I I took a week off to focus on a writer's development for a play I'm writing with my theatre company. Um, But that's also given me some time to contemplate things. So... First up, Batara Stories on Instagram has totally caught up with the show now and left some more gems to think about. On the steampunk appendices, they asked if there would be firearms in this world. And if not, why not? Because it is in line with that historical period. I think that if guns exist, they'd be powered by magic. And actually, in line with this idea that society is progressing technologically, it could almost be like a convenience to use a gun rather than try and think of a different spell to use, even though it would also be powered by magic. But it's definitely something to keep unpacking. On episode 5, Kill My Spellcasting, they said that some types of magic could be illegal until you're licensed to do it. I love this suggestion, and I think it definitely makes a lot of sense. When we get to it, you'll see I was kind of heading down this path of regulation of magic as well, um, but that's for another episode. On episode 6, Kill My Cosmology, they actually echoed a thought that I'd been having since this episode, and so I'm really glad they brought it up, which is that maybe the whole spirit thing is kind of not the right vibe for the story. Um, I've been focusing more on a scientific and quantifiable world. At the very least, I think I'm less inclined to have spirits as a common thing. Um, I don't know, maybe I should kill this darling altogether. What are your thoughts? Kenya came in with their darling axe swinging on episode 7, Kill My Wand Law and said, love the ideas about wands you've put forward in this episode, but not sure if they quite marry up for me with the spellcasting concepts you've previously established for Whipworld. I think introducing wands potentially overcomplicates things. The whole intersection of magic and nature, rituals, thoughts and memories as a focus, and magical evolution vibe makes them seem kind of unnecessary to me. Something like wands as a part of the newness, a more modern convenience item that removes some of the hard work, practice and patience of spellcasting, but is perhaps associated less with artistry. Your ideas about current trends in wand fashion would fit in well, and there would be some interesting class implications too. This is a very good point, and I think that the wands I described in Kill My Wanderlore could be the perfect example of a darling because it was an old idea I was hanging on to and intentionally adapted into this idea, so dragging it around. 
Um, my feeling is the answer lies somewhere in between, that maybe these objects aren't wands per se, but given everything we've discussed about spellcasting, they may still turn up as spell ingredients. Or alternatively, is the use of wands more the path to go down? Um, people use them as they need for their particular brand of spellcasting. So, you know, it's not the same for everyone, but everyone uses them. I present a kind of halfway idea in this episode's story. Lastly, Jen left their first comment on episode 4, Kill My Setting. They had some great book recommendations, but also made this brilliant suggestion. Having read a lot of fantasy in my youth, I'd repeatedly come across botanical terms like birch and beech, and had no way of conceptualizing what this meant, going so far as to look up pictures to give myself a mental image. Similarly, a lot of the landscape descriptions and conceptions of animal life in fantasy is solidly based in a British, Westerner, European style of lush green forests and moss and badgers, etc., I would love to see a fantasy world that drew on Australian flora and fauna, which would completely challenge the typical greenery of Eurocentric fantasy. Even seeing elements of the bush in the setting would be something I've never come across and would be a fresh perspective on what fantasy worlds can look like. Obviously, Jen is Australian, like me, and they have a fantastic and very intriguing point. The unspoken standard for fantasy, as we've discussed, is European, Eurocentric even as far as using outdated imperial measurements like miles and inches. Why can't we do something different? So, in this week's story, I'm throwing in some Australian scenery and metric terms. And I might try continue giving that a go in future weeks too. I want to see where this goes. As always, if you have anything you'd like to add to any of these conversations, you can do this. You can jump over to the blog at Hayden Rogers, that's R-O-D-G-E-R-S dot net slash killmydarlings and comment on the post for the relevant episode. Remember to sign up for email alerts while you're there. Or you're welcome to add your thoughts on Instagram, Tumblr, Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Kill My Darlings podcast and slide into my DMs or comment on a random post. If you like emailing more, send it to killmydarlingspodcast at gmail.com. The law and how it's upheld is a big consideration when you're designing a society. There are always checks and balances in organised, governed society, but the long arm of the law takes many forms in different novels and settings. It's not always obviously labelled as the police, and depending on what goes on in the story, it may not even be actual law enforcement that your characters encounter, but rather another form of organised rule-keeping. They could be on your protagonist's side and allies, or, more commonly, an obstacle or antagonistic force that works against your heroes. My starting point for thinking about law enforcement was a meeting of my old and new ideas. For many years, I've carried around this idea of something called the Cloak and Dagger Guild. I thought it was a clever play on words for what was essentially a CIA-like intelligence agency, Cloak and Dagger makes sense as a sort of military title, while also being an idiom referring to surreptitious or secretive goings-on. At the time, I obviously didn't realise what a guild was though, so when revisiting it, I've had to update the name. More on that in a bit. As I mentioned in my first episode, I want to explore and parallel contemporary issues. This is where the new part of the equation comes in. 
2020 has seen a lot of dialogue about the police splashed across the news, as well as corruption of the law and democracy. In fact, many of our contemporary issues stem from poor management and an outdated legal system. Obviously, that extends well beyond just the police and into government and legislation, but the link is there. A few things remained constant across both ideas, mainly that, in all versions, this law enforcement entity was an obstacle or antagonistic force in the plot, but also a third party to the standard forces of good versus forces of evil. They work to achieve their own ends and their allegiance is not concrete. Also, as with all things, including the real world police, there is of course nuance to the moral makeup of the organisation. Not everyone who is a part of it is an evil dictator or prejudiced power mad thug. Many are just people doing their jobs and under the impression that they aren't contributing negatively to the world. And in fact, many of their day-to-day duties may well be to help others or maintain general order, solve crimes and fix bad things. However, when you examine the goals of those at the top, the real agenda could be revealed. As discussed in episode 4, Kill My Setting, we know that the city in which the novel is set, of course, I still haven't even named that, so let's call it Whip City, I guess, there was a merging of two nations where one brought new technologies to the other and also set up shop there. I think during this transition, the Cloak and Dagger Not Guild was employed as an intelligence and law enforcement service. We know that despite the fact there is not much history to be found on it, the transition was not necessarily a smooth one. So it makes sense that a little extra help might have been needed. And we also know that this happened about 30 years ago. That's pretty recent, so it makes sense they would still be installed, and perhaps if it's been working so far, they might have a more permanent place now in how things are run. Now, about the name, and specifically the term guild, a guild is a group of artisans, so that doesn't really make sense. Um, I had to rename it, but I felt very attached to the cloak and dagger after all these years, even if it is a bit on the nose for the title of an intelligence organisation. I toyed with the historical British terms for law enforcement, such as watchmen or the constabulary, and looked up ranks from different organised enforcers like the military. However, it felt too attached to the government. This is a third-party organisation after all. So this sent me down a more corporate route, and I landed on simply the Cloak and Dagger Company. However, To get there, I went on a bit of a thought journey through probably the best historical example of a company being hired for law enforcement in a foreign country, the East India Trading Company. The existence of the East India Company's presidential armies even aligns very closely with the start and finish of the Industrial Revolution, so it actually lends itself perfectly to the setting we've created. A bit of history. The British government gave the East India Company a royal charter to trade for exotic goods around the Indian subcontinent. They did that for about a century, but they were greedy, and eventually they seized and colonised India and surrounding areas with their private armies in what would become part of the British Empire when the company was nationalised and absorbed by the British government. At the height of their power, they had twice as many soldiers as the British army. 
This private force was known as the Presidency Armies, one for each of the three presidencies of colonial India. They waged many wars and expanded their territory. Now, I'm not saying that this history is an exact likeness to the Cloak and Dagger Company. Rather, I'm just demonstrating that the idea of a private law enforcement or even rule of a nation is actually based in reality. The East India Company was working alongside the British government, but ultimately they were an independent organisation. Until they weren't. Also, a quirk I'd really like to steal is the fact that the East India Company was also buying and selling goods while enforcing the law with a private army. I think it would be kind of cute if the Cloak and Dagger Company literally sells cloaks and daggers. They are the foremost suppliers. Perhaps they go into business selling other things too, but I like to think that they started out as a business selling cloaks and daggers and are now a private army. Because I imagine the Cloak and Dagger Company is a kind of hybrid between an intelligence organisation and a corporation, I thought it'd make sense that there's a rank system, although I didn't make it overly complicated because I just don't think it needs to be, basically. The first or lowest rank is an agent, an agent of the company. Colloquially, they're known as cloaks. These are like the foot soldiers and beat cops. They're the ones who do the groundwork, are sent out to respond to things and would potentially do patrols and that sort of thing, keeping in mind that the organisation is employed to keep the peace and identify and investigate threats and crimes, but aren't necessarily a city guard that deals with a thief taking a loaf of bread. It's more like the city guard discovers the thief isn't who he says he is, and the cloaks are called in to investigate further. Next in rank is an inquisitor. An inquisitor is more of a detective. They are in charge of cases and can command agents as a part of that task, though they don't have control over a specific group of agents, more so that the resources of the company are more available to them. Unlike the real police, there aren't a lot of ranks or kinds of officers who go out on the job. It's basically just agents and inquisitors who are out actively solving cases. Above the inquisitor is the executist. An executist is in charge of a section of the city like a precinct, and is at the level where they have prime command of all the agents in that precinct. At this point, I'm imagining Whip City is quite large and would have a few executists, but executists don't just look after geographical areas. They also belong to departments which can deal with specific things, such as the Department of Conspiracies and the Department of Violent Acts. They are responsible for completing the caseloads of these departments by delegating, Even at this level, an executist may still go out into the field. Near the top now, we have the directors. These are more of administrators, the heads of the departments who are in charge of everyone working on one of their cases. So at this point, there are only as many directors as there are departments. They're detached from daily goings-on, executists take that workload, and are concerned with the big picture. They are also known to go off on top priority missions for the company, especially where the company is hired to do so, like investigating high-profile people or bodies or even going off on scientific discoveries and things. Actually, let's come up with some departments. We have a Department of Conspiracies, Collusion and Connivances, and the Department of Violent Acts, Dangerous Thoughts and Deaths. That's just to expand on the ones that I said before. Actually, 
Do you like them expanded or shorter? I'm undecided. There'd be the Department of Unsolved Events, Mysterious Happenings and Enigmas. The Department of Disturbances, Disruptions and Disorder. The Department of Purloiners, Prohibited Items and Piracy. Okay, I, I kind of, I love the threes now. And we always love alliteration. Since this is also a commercial enterprise, there should probably be a Department of Merchants, Means and Sales. Got to have sales in there. Also, I love the idea that maybe some agents are literally out there selling cloaks and daggers. <laughs> and I guess a Department of Ideas, Hypotheses and Experimentation, because you need research and development if you want to stay ahead of the game. Anyway, the last rank and the kingpin of the whole operation is the president of the company. This role is obvious. He runs the whole thing, only really interacts with the directors, steers the company towards achieving their own ends and making lots of money, perhaps at the expense of moral actions. Uniform-wise, I think it's going to be pretty classic. Obviously, they're all dressed in cloaks and have daggers. I think everyone wears a black cloak and has a special company dagger. The blade would be stamped with the emblem of the company and the hilt wrapped in perhaps a coloured cord or inlaid with a certain gemstone. Initially, it's a normal dagger, but as you rise in the ranks, your dagger would have spells placed on it to make it more magical. Maybe even the cloaks too. These might have to do with your department or perhaps offensive magic. And going off the ideas for wands from episode 7, whether or not we continue with that, they'd probably be trained to use the dagger as a wand. You want to have a badge on there for good measure. Um, I'm going to say it's the company logo, but made out of different materials maybe as you get higher. So an agent would have a steel pin and then perhaps an inquisitor would have a bronze pin and so on. Actually, for fun, um, during the week, I will endeavor to design that emblem and put it on social media. So keep an eye out for that. I'll just put it up like everywhere. One thing I also know about the company is they would employ promising individuals of magical skill and talent. Those chosen to progress up the ladder, especially to the rank of Inquisitor, would probably have interesting magical skills in certain specializations. But more on what those are another time. Before we get to this week's story, I have another podcast on the That's Not Canon Productions network that I want to let you know about. It's called The Sky Machine. And basically, if you like this podcast, you're going to like The Sky Machine. Each week, the two hosts do a build of a new original world. Magical, of course, or, you know, fantasy. Um, there's also a bit of a focus on tabletop role-playing games too. And they even write a short story for each world. So... There you go. And because it's on the same network as me, you can find it in all the same places you listen to this. Speaking of short stories, this week's is a fun and pretty classic story, but putting into place a lot of the stuff we've spoken about across all the episodes now because we're actually really getting somewhere with the world building. It's starting to come together. It's entitled Compartment 5, Carriage 10. Rain rattled and jolted down the rails. Through the carriage windows, a valley of white gum trees with their silver-green leaves and red rock cliffs raced by as the tracks took them around the top of a plateau. 
sitting alone in a booth towards the back of the last car of the train, was Rishi. The fringe of the young woman's cropped blonde hair fell over her blue eyes as the train made a particularly big lurch. Her small leather case lurched slightly on the seat next to her too. Rishi instantly picked it up and wedged it between her and the wall, like it was an egg she was brooding over. She brushed the hair out of her eyes and pulled the tall collar of her pale green trench coat around her face. She'd been pretending to read a newspaper for the entire journey, obscuring her face behind the large pages. The less people who can remember seeing her face on this train, the better. Rishi glanced out the window, only a few kilometres to go. She slipped her hand into her pocket and fiddled with something absentmindedly. A couple of minutes passed as she stared blankly at her newspaper, only vaguely taking in an article about the new director of the Department of Ideas, Hypotheses and Experimentation at the Cloak and Dagger Company. The train curved around a bend, revealing the outline of city towers and the glint of a large river in the distance. Rishi reached into her pocket and, using the paper to shield her hand from view, she removed a small blue-black stone. It was perfectly smooth and shaped like a small egg. As she looked at it, a bright purple colour bloomed across the surface. That was her cue. Rishi dropped the stone back in her pocket, folded the paper, placing it on the seat, and took her case in hand as she stood. Her face was unwaveringly casual. The only sign of the nerves fluttering in her throat was a slight flush in her cheeks and the rhythm she tapped with her index finger on the lid of the case. Seemingly unhurried, she moved up the train through the carriages. Each time she reached the connecting door between them, she would sneeze into her green handkerchief and toss a little white powder in the air. Everyone nearby would suddenly look at their watches, notice a funny trick of the light, or stare through the window at the scenery absentmindedly, and not notice her slip through the door. The train had 14 carriages in total, and Rishi was headed for the 10th. It was at about the 7th that she sensed her diverting spell failed to capture someone. As she slipped into the gangway connection between 7 and 8, she caught a glimpse of a man in a black cloak rising out of his chair, conspicuously observing her through a crowd of otherwise distracted people. It was so brief she couldn't be sure. Rishi took a moment in the dim, rattling corridor. If someone saw her, they had to be looking for her in order to avoid the spell. She must move quickly. Taking a deep breath, Rishi pasted a cheery smile across her face as she pushed through the door into carriage 8 and started pacing purposefully up the aisle. Arriving at the end, she sneezed and tossed another pinch of white powder in the air, slipping into the next gangway connection. Turning to close the door, dread washed over her as she noticed the door at the other end was opening. Quickly she pulled her door closed, pausing just for a moment to confirm her fears. It was an agent of the company. Clicking the door closed, she shuffled her green coat off, revealing a white blouse and brown tweed trousers belted around her waist. She draped the coat over the case and moved into carriage 9. Smile in place, she confidently moved down the aisle. He'd be gaining on her. About halfway down, she strode up to a coat hook in an empty booth and hung her green trench up, immediately moving on without it. A few people stared as she left and she knew they'd be immune to her spell now. In the last booth before the next door, she saw a large yellow silk scarf hanging. Pausing, she sneezed once again and snatched it off the hook, as those in the booth were diverted, 
then, sneezing again, slipped into the next gangway connection. The door at the far end of carriage 9 was opening just as she did. Without wasting a moment, she entered carriage 10. She was here. These last few carriages on the train had eight private compartments. Rishi knew exactly which one to go to, dashing down the empty hall to the fifth compartment. A middle-aged woman in a frilly purple dress and large sun hat was alone inside. Hello, she said, eyeing Rishi nervously. The sun is bright and cheerful, Rishi replied, sitting next to the window on the bench opposite the woman. The woman's eyes widened as she understood. Oh, yes, okay, and tomorrow looks even brighter, she replied. Rishi barely gave her a moment to finish the code. Don't be alarmed, but I'm being followed by a cloak. The woman looked instantly alarmed and her head gawked towards the passageway outside. Look out the window. Pick something to be fascinated by, Rishi snapped. While speaking, Rishi took the silk scarf she had snatched from the wall of carriage nine and tied it around her cropped blonde hair in a sort of turban, tying a very decisive knot after wrapping it up. Then, placing both hands over it, she slipped it backwards off her head. As she did, long, russet red, curly hair tumbled out and down around her shoulders. The woman in the purple dress stared, obviously very alarmed about the whole situation. Okay then, look at me. Rishi tried to smile comfortingly, but intensity pulled at her eyes. Let's talk about our favourite one shop in the city and how we can't wait to browse, okay? I'll start. Oh, Regina, won't it be marvellous to visit the one shop in the city? What was its name again? Rishi was arranging the scarf tidily around her neck, ensuring the knot was still tied. The woman, who was not actually named Regina, gulped and tried to respond. Um, yes, yes, it would. It would be great. Um, Marina? I I believe the store is called, um, Marina's Wands. Rishi's nostrils flared and teeth clenched. Oh, yes, how could I forget? We both share a name. Silly me. I suppose it's been so long since I've been there. Describe to me how we get there again? Of course, Marina. It has been a while. As the woman detailed a made-up trip to a fictional store, Rishi whispered to her under her breath. Keep it lively. Focus on me. Keep smiling. If anyone comes by, ignore them. Look only at me. We're deep in conversation. And that's how we got there last time. Not Regina finished her tale, starting to settle into the idea of fake conversation. Fabulous, Regina. You have such a great memory. (laughs) Rishi laughed with all the manufactured mirth she could muster. And what of the wands? Are you after anything in particular? Oh, yes, um, the wands will be wonderful. I was really interested in, in browsing more than anything. I could always... Not Regina faltered on her words for a moment as a figure paced slowly into their periphery. Rishi could see her fighting the urge to look, so she nodded enthusiastically and smiled broadly. I could always... um... do with a new wand, Regina finished quickly. Oh, you you do love to spend my inheritance, don't you, mother? They could feel the man's eyes on them and see his darkly cloaked shape. 
I should be convincing you to return home on the next train rather than spend a day in the city shopping. He had paused. Well, at least I'm here to keep an eye on you, mother. The cloak took a pace towards the compartment door. Don't speak to me like that, Marina. It's not very nice. Not Regina chimed in. The cloak paced on to the next compartment. Both women laughed, half pretending and half with relief. Quickly, do you have the documents? Rishi whispered before adding more loudly, Sorry, mother, but you know I'm right. Not Regina nodded and stood, retrieving a black leather travel bag from the rack above. She pulled out a file and passed it to Rishi, who snapped open her small case and slipped them inside. Thank you. I'll get out of your hair. And out of this hair, Rishi gestured to the russet curls. She stood to leave, but as she made for the door to the compartment, not Regina's hand grasped hers roughly. Rishi turned around to see the woman in the frilly purple dress was no longer there, but rather, in her place, a steely-looking woman with slick dark hair wearing a long black cloak. The man that had been following her appeared outside once again. I'm afraid not, said not Regina, her voice now with a commanding edge. You're under arrest by order of the company, Department of Conspiracies, Collusion and Connivances. Rishi glimpsed at the bronze badge pinned to this woman's breast. She was an inquisitor. Not today, mother, Rishi said. With her free hand, she tossed a fistful of the white powder in the air, and a huge white cloud of scentless smoke erupted from the midst of it. The door to the compartment burst open, clouds of smoke spilling out into the corridor. The cloaks were calling to each other, and in a few moments, the Inquisitor had cast a spell to blow the smoke out a window. But Rishi had vanished. And there you go. Um, now is the time to get out your red pen and head over to the blog at Hayden Rogers. That's R-O-D-G-E-R-S dot net slash kill my darlings to leave your thoughts on this week's episode. Or you can also do this on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. Just search for Kill My Darlings Podcast or find the links to any of these things in the description. If you'd like to email in, send it to killmydarlingspodcast at gmail.com. And if you like this show and you want to show your support for this show, then please consider becoming a patron of Kill My Darlings Podcast on Patreon. Again, just search that or hit the link below. As part of that community, you can leave your feedback there, uh, get ad-free episodes, and get early access to the short stories that will appear in future episodes. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to killing some darlings with you soon. Bye.